Amen. Wonderful songs this morning, wonderful participation in singing, wonderful to have this opportunity to open God's Word with you. We're going to bring back something that we usually reserve only for one time a year. One time a year we typically do this, but uh, we're going back to Uncle Jeff's story time. Uncle Jeff's story time. So, uh, if you will, please uh, dim the lights and set the mood. We're going to have Uncle Jeff's story time this morning for a moment. We've been talking about the, um, we've been talking about the, 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 the boys... Jacob and his boys. And we get to the point in the story where Jacob is now at the end of his life and that wonderful moment that we've all looked forward to. Jacob is going to bless his boys. Jacob is going to give his final admonitions, his final love, his final grace, his final best wishes. This is what every little Jewish boy grows up waiting for and this blessing from God. Or in this case, this blessing from dad. But it is an extension of the blessing from God. So I pulled the storybook out from our shelf. Daddy Jacob blesses his boys. And so I'm just going to share it with you this morning. Get all cozied up here in our story chair. <clears throat> it comes to us from Genesis chapter 49. Jacob called his sons and he said, Gather together so I can tell you what will happen in the future. Assemble. Listen, you sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you're my firstborn. Here we go. My might and the beginning of my strength, outstanding in dignity, outstanding in power. But you are destructive like water and will not excel. You got on your father's bed and you defiled him. He got on my couch. It's got to get better than this. Hold, hold on. Simeon and Levi, you are brothers, weapons of violence like knives. Oh, my soul, do not come into their counsel. Do not be united to them, my heart. For in their anger they have killed men, for pleasure they have hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their fury, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, I will scatter them in Israel. Whew, okay. Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Oh, good. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches and lies down like a lion, like a lioness. Who will rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until it comes to whom he belongs. The nations will obey him, binding his foal to the vine and the colt to the choicest vine. He will wash his garments in wine and robes in the grapes. But his eyes will be dark from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun will live by the haven of the sea and become a haven for ships. His border will extend to Sidon. Issachar. Issachar is a stubborn mule lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees a resting place and a pleasant land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and become a slave. Dan will judge his people, but Dan is a snake beside the road, a viper by the path. The bites the heel of the horse, so it's right. Am I reading the right story? Is this in the Bible? This doesn't sound right at all. Asher's food will be rich and provide delicacies for royalty. Naphtali is a free-running doe, and he speaks delightful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. Archers will attack him, they will shoot at him and oppose him, but his bow will remain steady. His hands will be skillful, the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of the God of your father who will help you, because of the sovereign God who will bless you with blessings from the sky above, from the deep sea that lies below, blessings of breast and womb. 
The blessings of your father are greater than the blessings of eternal mountains or the desirable things of age-old hills. They will all be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of the prince of his brothers. Whew, we saved it there for a second. Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. And in the morning he devours, devours his prey. And in the evening he divides his plunder. I, I, I got to tell you, folks, that was not the story that I expected at all. When, when I think about the story of how it is that Daddy Jacob is going to bless his children, I, I don't think about things like this. This sounds much more like curses than it does blessings. These are horrible things. These are admonitions and, and accusations about these boys that don't show a functional family, a loving family, a, a united family. But in fact, what we see here is something enormously tragic. You see, this is the family from whom God has chosen to bless all the nations of the earth. This, this family, at best, is a train wreck. This is a family that even in the moment when the dad is supposed to give his final words of uh, admiring and, 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 and affirmation and love to his children, he can't say anything nice about all of them except one. And this is the family that God has chosen? These are our spiritual forefathers? We're descended from this family tree spiritually? What a mess. What a mess. This morning I want us to go through this story and I want us to do it in a formula that's now very familiar for you. A way that I like to approach scripture and that is with three simple questions. What? So what? And now what? What? What gives us the details? What happened? What is the storyline? Who are the people and what happened? So what? So what says how does it fit in the bigger story? How does it fit in the bigger context? Now what says... So what am I supposed to do with this? Well, I've just given you the what. Jacob, who is the father of these 12 sons, 13 sons now, and he is the father of all these children. It is from him that the tribes of Israel get their name. It is from him that his very name Jacob was changed to the name Israel, the name that his whole nation would take on. And we see how incredibly dysfunctional his family is. That's the what. Let's ask the so what. How does this fit into the big story? How did we get to this point? And what is God doing in the midst of this crazy mess? And I'm going to ask you to join me in a really unusual place. I'm going to ask you to join me in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Now I know this is hundreds and hundreds of years into the future and I know this is far removed from the story of Jacob and his boys. But I think what we're going to uncover in, Gen in Galatians chapter 5 is some answers to how it is that this mess occurred with Jacob's family. Let's take a look together at verse 20. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20 specifically, Paul is providing this list of things that are fruits of the flesh. These are, these are the, the vices. These are the bad things that come from being fallen people. And he's going to give live us a whole, he's going to give us, easy for me to say, right? He's going to give us a whole list of these, these vices and these fruit of the flesh that we have. But in the midst of it, he's going to give us a subset that I really want us to focus on. So what we have here is this picture of this long list. And whenever Paul does this, Paul will often give us a long list of either virtues or vices. But he divides them into little subsets, into small little sections. For example, 
when we were talking about um, the fruit of the Spirit, not too long ago in Bible class, we, we spent a whole quarter looking at the fruit of the Spirit, and you might remember from that that we said the first three fruit of the Spirit make a subset, the subset of the inner changes, the inner transformation. The remaining qualities, like patience and kindness and goodness, are outward manifestations. They're part of one big group, but there's two subsets. Well, specifically, in this subset, I want us to notice these particular phrases. Hostility, or yours might say enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger. That's a subset. That's a subset within this larger group. Hostility, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger. I'd like to suggest this morning that what we have here is a progression of how to destroy a family. Or how to destroy a friendship. Or how to destroy a church, or how to destroy a community, or how to destroy an organization. It, this is the formula for how it is that you end up at the end of your life like Israel did, like Jacob did. With literally nothing good to say about most of your children. This is the formula for how to get there. And I think it forms the so what. I think it forms the how did they get there question. And here's the part I'm going to posit real quick. It hasn't changed. What destroyed a family then, what would destroy a church then, what would destroy a community then is the same thing that Satan uses to destroy a family, a church, a community today. Let's look at the first word. The first word, if we look at it in the Greek, um, this word euthria, and I don't pronounce any Greek words right. You all know that. Bishop's back there just, he has his face in his hands. He's like, yeah, I can't believe you said that that way. Uh, but that's the way I said it, Bishop. That's the way I said it. Hostility or enmity. This word means to alienate. This word means to alienate. And, and what this word is, is this is a wall-building word. This is a wall-building word. This is a word of us and them. This is a word of deciding who is on my side of the wall and who is on that side of the wall. It is a wall of determining boundaries and, and determining who is and who's not part of us and who is and who is not part of them. That's what this word literally means. For, for a variety of ways. Now, th this was in the first century it was true and it's true in, in our world today. It's true in 2021. Hostility, enmity, line drawing, wall building takes place over any number of circumstances and situations. We can draw lines and division over politics. We can draw lines and, and build walls over nationalism. We can build walls and draw lines over race issues, over socioeconomic levels and reasons, over forms of government. We can draw lines about... Um, congregational affinity, religious groups. We can draw lines over any number of things. It was true then, and it's true now. The first step towards destroying something you love is to start by creating groups, de determining an enemy, making a wall, making a line, and saying, us and them. Us and them. Because what happens with enmity or hostility, us and them thinking is, number two, it leads us to strife. It leads us to strife. I was going to try to pronounce this word, Bishop, but I'm not even going to try to pronounce it because I don't want to hear it. The, the word strife, and this word in Greek, which I'm not going to pronounce, is the word that literally means contention. It means, it means contention. It means to have difficulties with, to have a sense of antagonism towards someone. And you see, this is ultimately what begins to happen. 
if I say enough, that's them and this is us, that's them and this is us, here's the line, here's the division, we're not them and they're not us, you can't hardly help but eventually starting to add to that value statement. You can't eventually, you're going to eventually start saying, and therefore because of that, we are at odds. It's not simply that we're different. It's not simply that we have different opinions. It's not simply that we, we look different or we live in different places or we vote different ways. It is now that I have a problem with you. I have a problem with you and it's usually based around fear. It's usually based around the idea that because they are not us, they are a threat. They are dangerous. We are not. And they are dangerous. And we begin to start viewing them this way. They are an enemy. They are a hostile. They are enmity. And we look at them as dangerous and a threat and we feel strife with them. And the third thing that happens, Paul says, jealousy. Jealousy. Now this word, zealous, not hard. I, even I can say that. Zealous. This word jealousy, it's different than envy. A lot of times in our modern vernacular, we take envy and jealousy, jealousy and envy. We make them, make them say the same thing. But in actuality, they're not the same thing. Jealousy is slightly different from envy. Envy is when you see somebody has something, you want that. That's envy. He has that and I want that. Jealousy is when I have something and I think you want it. I, I think you want what I have. You see, that's why we can talk about in romantic relationships that, you know, I get jealous because I'm worried that you want what I have. We wouldn't say I get envious because that's the opposite side of the equation. I'm, I'm jealous. I'm scared that you're after what I have. And you see the next layer, once they've been boundaried off and once they are not us, and once we begin to see them as dangerous and a threat and have anger and fear towards them, then we have this idea that they're out to take something that's ours. There's a threat here. There's something they're coming after. There's something that they want to take from me. Paranoia becomes higher and higher. I'm worried about them because they are out to get me and what I hold dear. And finally, fourth, it blows up in an outburst of anger. It blows up in an outburst of anger. This is the terminus. This is the final step. This is the conclusion, the climax. This is where it gets to the, to the, 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 the action, where something, you step out and you take an action on that. And this final stage, them, becomes a full-fledged enemy. And in whatever form that outburst takes place, it can be a disillusion of a friendship. It can be the disowning of a family member. It can be the isolating of a group. It can be the leaving of a church or an organization. It can be taking your kids out of school. It can be any number of things, but it's when you finally had it up to here, you vented your anger, you've got it all out, you can't take it anymore, and now I'm going to act. And the outburst of anger has been the result of a jealousy which was built upon a strife, which was built upon a division. And I think that is exactly what we see happen in the life of Jacob's boys. Specifically, when it comes to Joseph. Let, let me take you back through a couple of passages here. I'm going to go through these quick so you may not have time to follow along with me. That's okay. I'll read them all to you. But let's go back to the very beginning of the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, and I'm going to read to you from verse 3. Now Israel, remember that's Jacob's name. Jacob changed, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. 
Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son born to him late in life and he made a special tunic for him. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, listen, they hated him and they were not able to speak kindly. They, draw a line, him. It all began with division. They got together and said, we are not him, he is not us, they and them. That begins the process. They drew the line and they alienated him and united themselves against him. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when his brothers told him about it, they hated him even more. Increasing, increasing. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the middle of the field, and suddenly my sheaf of grain rose up and stood upright, and your sheaves surrounded my sheaf and bowed down to it. And his brothers asked, do you really think you will rule over us and have dominion over us? And they hated him even more because of his dream and because of what he said. Did you see the escalation building? First of all, he's on the other side of the line. He's not us, he's them. Now the hatred is beginning to grow into agitation and contention and, and anger and, and fear. What's next is jealousy. It's very easy to predict, isn't it? Verse 9, I had another dream. I'm sorry, he had another dream. I channeled my inner Martin Luther King there for a second. Then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when his father and his brothers, his, when he told his father and brothers, his father rebuked him, saying, What is this dream that you had? Will I, your mother, and your brothers really come and bow down to you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept in mind what Joseph said. Isn't that exactly what Paul says is going to happen? Isn't that exactly what the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to put down? You start by drawing lines, you, you add strife and agitation, and it's not long before you're jealous. He's going to come take something I have. He's, he's, he wants something I have. He wants something that's mine properly. The only thing left is an outburst of anger. Verse 20, come now, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of those wells, and we'll say that a wild animal ate him. Then we'll see how his dream turns out. What's the final step? You act upon it outburst of anger. Isn't that exactly the progression that Paul warns us is going to take place? We see it. And we see it destroy a family. We see it at the moment when it should have been the happiest moment in these little boys' life that what he looks at is he can't say one good thing about his own sons because he's watched this progression that Satan has planted so perfectly into his family take full root to the extent that there's hatred, animosity to the, to the extent of violence. I said from the beginning that this is Satan's ploy. This is still one of Satan's favorite ploys. This is still something Satan is doing. And in fact, I would contend that Satan actually probably has helped in our modern world even more. Because we have these beautiful ways that we can disseminate information more quickly than ever. We can draw opinions more quickly than ever. We can voice our opinions more quickly than ever. And it's easier, more acceptable, and almost expected for us to make lines and boundaries and draw who's us and who's them. Because that's the world in which we live. But you know what? If we start by drawing lines of who's us and who's them, and we add to that the fear that he says is going to naturally take place and the jealousy that's going to come across from that, 
How long is it before we are outbursting in anger? And how often have we seen that take place? People on the other side of the aisle are them. People from other nations are them. People of other races are them. People who attend different congregations are them. People who look different are them. And so and so and so it goes. And the anger and the fear and the jealousy boil over. And I don't know that it's been any clearer than what we've seen in the last 24 months. I think Satan has had a heyday. Loved every minute of it. Watching the way we have bitten and devoured each other. And see the way that families and congregations and communities and organizations have been torn to shreds. Politically, we've seen clashes in the streets between people on both sides of a line that we've made. We've seen an assault on the Capitol. We've seen racially clashes in the streets over lines that we've drawn. We've seen all kinds of trouble in in this world of the COVID, where, where lines of masks and vaccines have divided us and caused us to be angry and judgmental and suspicious of each other. And it's destroyed families and it's destroyed homes and sadly it's destroyed churches. This, this past week, um, Jill sent me a, um, a link to a podcast and in that podcast was a really insightful study that was done by Acts 29, which is a church planting organization. And Acts 29, this organization has done this nationwide study for months and they've asked, what's the condition of your church? What's the condition of your local congregation? And they have this thing called the rule of the thirds. That this is what the average church is going through. The the average church has been split into three distinct groups. They find that one third of the people in that particular church are more resolute, more committed, more engaged, more devoted than they've ever been. They find that one third of that group has gotten angry, has shouted and stormed out, and they're not coming back. And they've determined one-third of that group is sitting waiting to see where they're going to come down. Folks, that's tragic. And that is Satan at work. That is Satan at work. Destroying churches, destroying families, destroying communities. And he's doing it with something that we are clearly told he's going to do. Exactly the way he's going to do it. It's like going into a football game and the team opposing you gives you their playbook and says, I'm going to run these ten plays. And we go, well, what am I supposed to do? God has said Satan is running these plays. This is his playbook. And we're watching it happen. And Joseph and his brothers watched it happen. It's not new. It's been going on from the very beginning. In fact, how interesting that first word is enmity. You remember that word from the Garden of Eden? Enmity would be placed on the heart of man. At the very first sin, God said, here's what's going to happen. From now on, you're going to start drawing lines. From now on, you're going to start alienating people. And here we are. How many thousands of years later, and we're still seeing the same thing 
happen. Because it's us and them. Because we don't like them. Because they're out to get us. And because now I'm going to act. Is it any wonder to anybody that the most common, I won't say the most common because I haven't done an exhaustive study. One of the most common warnings that Paul gives the early church is about division. One of the most frequent warnings that he gives to churches is about division. Don't divide the church. Why is he so adamant about that? Because he sees clearly the damage that's done. That's why he says things like this. Now, I plead with you, brethren, Paul speaking, I plead with you, brethren, in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, speak the same thing. Don't let there be any divisions among you. Be perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment. Earlier in that same book, he says, For first of all, first of all, when you come together, I hear that there are divisions among you. He's saying this is a, as an accusation. He's, he's disappointed in them. Later in another book, he says, Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with lowliness, with gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Listen, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And that's just three. I could go on and on. Satan may not have ever been as happy with any 24-month period in my lifetime and probably in any of your lifetimes as he has been with this one. He's loving the division. He's loving the strife. He's loving the animosity. He's loving the mistrust, and it brings him great joy. And he doesn't even have to bring a new playbook to the game. So what? That's so what? That's how Jacob and his boys got there. And that's how all of us are experiencing Satan's ploys today. And that leaves us with the now what? That leaves us with the now what? So, so what do we do? We see it, we identify it, we recognize it, it's here. Yes, now what? Well, let me give you three quick, three quick suggestions of how to deal with the problem. First of all, and all these require self-examination. All these require you inviting God, me inviting God to look deeply inside our hearts and point out, just like the psalmist said, search me, O God. Search me and see if there is any unclean thing in me. It's going to start with you and I recognizing, God, I need your help to root this out. I need your help to come in and show me where is the darkness in my life that I need rooted out. Three suggestions of how to ask God to help us root this out. First of all, deal with it before it becomes a problem. Nip it in the bud. I think Barney Fife said that famously. Nip it in the bud. If you have a mouse problem, do you want to deal with a mouse problem that two mice or 200 mice? Let's attack it at the source. Let's attack it at the beginning. Let's attack it before it becomes an issue. And so the first thing I would suggest that we really need to do 
is we really need to ask God to look into our lives and help us identify where am I guilty of this? Where am I prone to draw lines of division? Who are the people that I look at and say, not with you, not going to deal with you, not interested in you, no, not with you, you're not with me. Who are the people that we're lining out? Who are the people that we're walling off? Because I tell you what, if you believe the Bible, and I do, you wall them off, you're going to fall down this progression. So isn't it better to start by looking at where we're building walls and ask, why did I build this wall in the first place? Is this what God wants me to do? Is this the right thing? I'd rather deal with it now than when I get to an outburst of anger down the road. How do we do that? I think that's going to be a radical prayer of forgiveness. I think that's going to be an asking of God to shape our minds and change how we think. And see people the way God sees people. Not the way fallen man sees people. That song we sang, when my love for man grows weak. When I'm prone to put you on the other side of a line, a wall. What's it say? Then to Calvary I seek. I'm going to look to the cross. What is he saying? What's the writer in that song saying? He's saying, I'm going to look to the cross. And how did Jesus see people as opposed to how I tend to see people? First step, let's nip it in the bud. Let's find out the ways that we are prone to alienate people, decide about people, judge people, draw lines and build walls. And let's instead look to the cross to see how Jesus looks at people. Second, what about the walls of division that are already there? What about the fear that we're already building? What about the jealousy that's already developing? What do we do when we're in the middle of it? You might very well be like I have been this week, highly convicted. Highly convicted this week. In looking at my life and saying, I do this. I do this. Highly convicted to be in my prayer room and say to God, I know I'm doing this and I can tell you who I do this to. What do you do if you find yourself like I have this week in that position? I'm already in it. I am jealous. They're, they're coming to take what's mine. I see it. I'm fearful. I'm angry. What do I do when I'm in the middle of it? I think it's going to be a really heavy diet of what we read earlier from Ephesians 4. And this is a passage that just keeps running through my head all week long. Walk worthy of the calling to which you were called with lowliness, with gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is what I need. This is my mantra. This is my continual meditation. Because I got to admit, I have taken the bait and fallen into it hook, line, and sinker. And Satan's got his claws on me. Chances are Satan's got his claws on more than just me. Finally, what do we do about the problem that we've always had? What do we do about the problem that started all this? What do we do about the problem that's the cause of all the troubles that we're having? And it's the problem that was started all the way back in the days of a garden and a tree and a rule that man didn't keep. What do we do about that problem? Why do we bite and devour one another? Why do we alienate each other? Why do we hate each other? Why do we fear each other? It all comes down to one simple, it's not simple, one massive thing, sin. So what do we do about the real underlying problem to this and everything else? Well, that's where we have definitive good news, y'all. Because there is nothing I can do. And there is nothing you can do. 
If by some crazy act of self-will you were able to, from this point forward, never sin again, you would still have how many years of sin laid at your, at your ledger? And so would I. And there is absolutely nothing we can do to change that because of our actions, because of our deeds. But thank God we don't have to. Thank God that's been done for us. Because this morning, we sit in these pews in one of two camps. Sinner, fallen, broken, frail, but forgiven, cleansed, made new, baptized into the death of Christ, resurrected to a new life where he says, if you walk in the light, as long as you walk in the light, for as, for as many steps as you take in the light, you might fall off the path one way or another. You're going to stumble, you're going to have mistakes, you're going to sin, you are going to continue to do it, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you continually. Or, you're a sinner, and you're fallen, and you're broken, and you need cleansed, and you need forgiven. And you need healed. Does it mean you're going to be perfect? Does it mean you're never ever going to sin again? No, look at us. Look at us. We're a train wreck. We're not perfect. There's a big difference between perfect and forgiven. But you know, as many that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Have known the cleansing of their sins. And that promise that he's going to walk with us and he's going to cleanse us moment by moment, step by step, as we continue to do our best to stay in that path, regardless of the fact that we know we're not going to. But this morning, we need to think seriously about where we draw lines. We need to think seriously about where we have already escalated that process to the point that we're feeling anger and jealousy towards other people. And we need to think seriously about our sin problem. We need to think seriously about what we're going to do about it. Maybe better put, what we can't do about it, but what he can do about it. This morning, I just want you to know that we're talking about big, heavy, deep stuff. I, I know that. I recognize that this isn't easy to listen to. It's not easy to talk about. It's certainly not been easy this week to study. But I tell you the optimistic point that I end on, and it's the thing I hang my hope on, and I serve a risen Savior who loved me enough to die on a cross to forgive even me. And I want that for you. We want that for you. And if we can help you in any way, I want you to know that our leaders stand right here in the back of this room. We would love an opportunity to talk with you, pray with you, help in any way we can.